0: The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at com.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca podcast network, I'm Eric Olander, and this week is our week in review edition, so that means I've got my two best friends here with me, managing editor Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. And from the beautiful island of Mauritius, Geronima, bonjour, our francophone editor.
0: Bonjour and good afternoon to you too.
1: Well, it's great to have you both here today because there's a lot to talk about and not a lot in Africa this week in the China-Africa space, in part because a lot of the news was very quiet around this space because there was a lot going on in Beijing. And this, of course, for many of you who follow China news, you've heard a lot about the 20th Party Congress that's been underway for the past four or five days now. The highlight of the event came... On Sunday, when Chinese President Xi Jinping gave his big address, now, I was thinking of laying out some of the key themes and playing sound bites of the address, but there's been so much talk about this. If you haven't followed it, I really recommend that you just kind of Google Xi Jinping, and that's all that will come up, and you'll see the key points. Today, what we want to talk about is what's the impact on Africa, the global south, and what it means in terms of the future direction for Chinese foreign policy writ large. I wrote a few things this week that uh, caused quite a bit of discussion. Both Kobus and Giraud were interviewed by the press, including the BBC. We'd like to kind of find out what you told those folks. Let's start with you, Giraud, because this was something that you followed very, very closely. What was your hot take on Xi Jinping's 20th Party Congress speech and what the impact is on Africa?
0: Oh, see, Eric, my take on that was the fact that, first of all, he did not really mention the global south that much. You know, it was more into uh, Chinese policy, internal policy, so it was not really something we could expect that he was going to mention the global south, namely. He mentioned about international order in general. The only international order where he made he put emphasis was on Taiwan, of course. That was quite expected. But in terms of global south, we did not see that much and we did not really expect that much. We can only Making like inferences or based on what was said and how the internal politics in China is going to move. So from there, we can ask, we can assume that China may move in a certain direction toward um, in, in a certain type of direction toward Africa or not. So from that, it was not really we didn't really have much to chew on. We now we have to wait on what's really going to happen when policies are going to be put in place.
1: Yeah, so you're right that this is not a speech that is normally one that is about foreign policy and that is about China's role in the world. This is very much a domestic speech. And in many ways, for our American listeners, I kind of equate it as a combination of the State of the Union address, where the president every year gets up in front of Congress and says, the state of our union is strong, and then goes through a litany of all the accomplishments that the president made in that previous year. She did the same thing. He went through all of the lists, he justified all of his policies, all of the reforms, all of the changes. So he talked about COVID zero, he talked about Taiwan. He. Talked He talked about militarization, he talked about fortifying their supply chains, particularly in tech. Uh, So this was a lot about the US, this was a lot about Taiwan, as Jero noted, but it was also like a... Convention speech at one of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party where they nominate their guy and they say he's the guy we're going to do. Now, this is where it's very interesting, Kobus, because he is a norm breaker here. So normally under law that was created in China after Deng Xiaoping or Deng Xiaoping did this, actually, where they wanted to avoid. A dictator for life. And so they created term limits where a Chinese president could be a president in office for five years and then another five years. And at that point, he's out of there. And they lived to that for 20 years, 20 plus years. Xi Jinping has now broken that. It doesn't seem to bother many people in Africa on the governance issues. At the end of the day, Cobus, what was your take on the speech, the reactions to it, the discussion, or the lack of discussion, in Africa about what happened.
2: Yeah, it's, it's it's very interesting. I think I think the lack of discussion is maybe not so surprising, considering how abstruse a lot of a lot of the the kind of discourse is. You know, for for those people who want to really kind of get a, a taste of of the vibe, you know, Bloomberg posted a, a full translation of the speech, and it is pages after pages. Like I, it, I think I was reading through it like for about two hours. You know, so so it, it's definitely interesting. But as you say, like the focus is very domestic. Um, the vibe you get is that is that for. Unlike earlier Chinese leaders, you know, she obviously, as everyone knows, she is a, is a national security politician. You know, kind of like is, is like is, is very security minded and is very focused on national security and on on you know kind of enforcing the borders and 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 such kind of like hard security issues. But what is interesting is that is that it, it seems like growth goals um have been slightly tempered in you know kind of in order to fit into national security so so it seems like a kind of a a dual focus on national on on hard security and economic security and with it then a strong focus also on food security so that was that was an interesting one for me that there's, there's 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 some focus on on food security and environmental security kind of in 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 the in the full speech. Um, I think the the another thing that that as Jérôme mentioned, zero COVID is, you know, is is Front and center, and they are leaning in. They're doubling down on it. So there was this absolutely no. There wasn't even any kind of acknowledgement that it was a painful process or anything. It was simply framed as a full-on success. And um, and so that's interesting. I think that's an in- indicator to to African commodities producers that that the kind of shutdowns and disruptions in Chinese Chinese manufacturing, which has been tough, I think, on a lot of a lot of exp- African exporters of primary commodities, um, they they're in. Place for a while you know kind of they're they're going to be there and then it was also interesting for me that the bri seemed to be de-emphasized like he um you know like he didn't mention the bri very often i think only like there's one little section focusing on it and it was immediately kind of folded into the global development initiative and global security initiative so it does seem like you know as people have, have predicted the those two seem to be the kind of bri 2.0 and the actual be the, the infrastructure heavy for kind of aspect of the bri seems to be receding
1: let me give you a couple takes one from one of our good friends Yuan sun who's the director of the china program at stimson center And then my hot take, and then I'd like to get your reactions to both. Yun Sun, who is really one of the sharpest observers and China watchers out there, uh, really, you know, had a very interesting take. And she said effectively that this was a very populist speech in many ways. And she didn't say this. These are my words. This is a speech that Donald Trump could have given. Because what he's basically saying is that the world is crazy out there. There's a lot of threats against us, and only I can solve it. And the party is the solution to all of the problems out there. So it was a very popular speech in that sense. And I thought that was a very interesting take. Here was the take that I took that did provoke a little bit of response. I got quite a few emails, including some from some African governments who didn't take well to my my statements. But I said basically that... This was a speech that indicated China's going to harden its positions. It's gonna focus now much more on the great power competition. The priorities now are in the near abroad. So Southeast Asia, Central Asia, South China Sea, Taiwan. He was very clear that he's going to focus on militarization, and he's going to focus on the coming potential conflict with the United States. That said to me, and Kobus, this is picking up on what you talked about in terms of not mentioning the BRI, not mentioning really the global South. And again, we didn't expect a lot about the developing world, as Giraud pointed out. That's not the nature of this speech. But in the past, there have been a few nods to China's role as the leader of the developing world, that G77, that Banyong kind of moment. None of that. And so my take on this was that Africa has got to up its game if it wants to deal with China. And this means that Africans have got to change the way that they engage with China. For 25 years now, close to 25 years, China has been active and present in Africa. And all three of us, I think, will agree that in those 25 years, the China literacy, and Kobus, as you wrote, the capacity about China has not really improved dramatically. And that's going to make things much more difficult for African countries if they want to engage China that is now focused elsewhere. Africa just isn't the priority that it was if this speech was given 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Cobus, let me get your take, then Giroud
2: yeah no I think I think you're right you know kind of Xi Jinping has other other fish to fry at the moment so this doesn't mean that necessarily that that Africa business will fall off or that African even investment flows will necessarily fall off because a lot of those are driven not by the Chinese government you know but by other Chinese entities but yeah you know kind of it's certainly a less of a, a much less rosy kind of view of the outside world and one where it's mostly focused on the outside world as a source of instability and you know you you really do get a a sense of 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 people who are obsessed with order and very anxious about chaos you know and and i think that that's many people have, have made that point about xi jinping himself but i think it's also true for chinese politics you know there's a there's a strong distaste for for disorder you know kind of in chinese politics and you know and and i think the 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 kind of the emergence of a lot of security challenges in Africa, for example, or, you know, those that's kind of like the, 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 as you also see in, in some of these blockbuster movies that we've discussed in, in, in recent episodes, there's a strong framing of Africa as the source of disorder at the moment, you know, kind of in Chinese popular culture. So, so that's, you know, so, so that, that is an interesting kind of data point.
1: And consider a story that you wrote today in our newsletter, About the urgent warning from the Chinese embassy in Nigeria for all Chinese nationals to evacuate from Kaduna State immediately because of marauding bandits who are looking to kidnap Chinese nationals. And then consider what that message was last December, I think it was, uh, Giro, where a similar message was ordered to Chinese nationals in the Eastern DRC. And then we've had attacks on ethnic Chinese in South, in South Africa, in Angola, and any number of places. That is a, a source of chaos, I think, that is permeating into the Chinese media that does not help Africa's position in the narrative that China sees Africa today. So, Giro, what's your take?
0: Yes my take on this it's um it's quite it's a bit what I even said on BBC earlier this week is the fact that First of all, China will remain. Africa will remain a political ally for 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 China. China will see, will keep on seeing Africa on a political perspective. Since you mentioned it in terms of global rivalry, great power rivalry, China needs foothold. It needs allies, and Africa will remain that place where China will be. Will keep on seeking. Uh, will keep on seeking approval. Will keep on seeking ally. And we've seen that on Nancy Pelosi visits and in Taiwan. We've seen that on Xinjiang votes uh, last week. On on the human, uh, human, human cancer in the United Nations. So, in that perspective, yes, Africa will remain China ally, but as Kobe said, that. Uh, Maybe we'll see some, we won't see uh, a fall off of Chinese business in Africa, we won't see that. But as we we used to point out earlier, already already this year, that we're going to see less than big infrastructure projects. I remember you made that comment a few days ago about Nigeria and how people came on to you about that situation that, you know, China will not come back with those big investment and all. But yes, but China will remain on that political perspective, seeing Africa as a place where I can find ally. But the second perspective still in this great power rivalry is the fact that China, in terms of Africa, we also have natural resources in countries like Zimbabwe, DRC and everything. Those countries will remain a center point for China because we are talking about cobalt, lithium, those places where China wants to keep an age. When we see restriction that the US is putting now on Chinese chips, manufacture, on Chinese import, and those, all those issues, you, we kind of understand that New technology and strategic minerals will remain a center point for the decades to come for Chinese position in the global states. So, yeah, for that aspect, especially, few countries in Africa will remain a central point for Chinese engagement on the continent.
2: Like, I wanted to ask both of you what you think the, the impact of this the superconductor ban coming from the Biden administration is going to be particularly on the on China's messaging in the global south because um like it was I was very it was very interesting for me to see the a the size of and uh, the scope of the ban and its implication like and then how little press it got like it it, it got so little discussion you know and, and
1: Edward Luce was well, not in the U.S. It didn't. There was a lot in the U.S., so maybe in, in South Africa there wasn't, but there was a lot in the
2: yes, uh, kind of in the rest of the world. Yeah, like Edward Luce was pointing out in 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 um, in FT that this is essentially, I mean, this is essentially like very close to uh, like a commitment to regime change, you know, and um, and the uh, and and what what we've seen in the past is that is that. In Africa and in South Africa, particularly, the like a lot of government people are very, very like sensitive, like super sensitive to any kind of like whisper of re- of regime change. And you know, kind of, and and so I was it is the the ban is very interesting for me. And I've already seen some kind of Indian commentators on Twitter being like, "Oh, this is what the U.S. is going to be doing to India in the 2030s." You know, like where they immediately where, where they where they kind of framing it as this kind of containment of developing countries.
1: Development. Be careful. That is actually Chinese propaganda that is filtering into India, saying they're doing it first to us and now they're going to come for you next. Okay, because India is part of the quad. Uh interesting.
2: Uh, This, I think. But that narrative still exists. That that's the thing. That narrative exists. I, I've heard that from policymakers in Africa. That 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 you know, kind of, and, and, and like for example, the the famous thing that Cyril Ramaphosa said, uh, you know, that 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 the US is is kind of cracking down on Huawei out of jealousy because of their advances. That is a there's an established narrative in Africa.
1: But Cobus, that is not the case on superconductors because the United States kicks ass on superconductors and and and, and semiconductors. I mean, so this is uh... no, of
2: course, um, the. But 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 but, but you, you kind of what I mean rather is is the wider framing of the decision of the United States to hold back the, an entire economic sector in a foreign country. That's what I'm. That's what I mean. Is you know kind of so 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 I'm just wondering how that's going to play in the global south.
0: For me, it's. I want to add something on that place where it's gonna play in the global south, even though it's not really global south, But for me, it's how it's going to play with China and Taiwan relationship. Because when we talk about superconductor, we also have Taiwan in the mix. Yes. So with that kind of ban will somehow may impact the way China see its approach with Taiwan and how it's going to react to that. Because obviously, the ban is going to affect uh, Chinese technology, and a lot of companies will be affected by that. But now, in the f- you know, in the coming years. China will have to adjust to that. At this point, China doesn't have the technology yet to really, you know, to, to, to move ahead without those, without, without, without Taiwan is going to need it. So now how China is going to react to that, to those ban, how it's going to adapt
1: and how long it's going to take it, that's a question we have to take into account. So this was kind of the point that I was bringing up in my column, which is, you know, stuff is getting real now. And the the decoupling movement is... Serious. It's a real thing in the United States. There's a lot of segments of American business and government that are fed up and they want to go in their own way. And let's be very clear here. This is not just the United States seeking to decouple from China. That is how the Chinese are positioning this. But that's complete and utter garbage. The Chinese have been decoupling from the United States for a very long time. Google, Microsoft, pick all the tech companies you want that have been kicked out of China. That is an effective decoupling as well. I know I'm going to get flack from, from people on that, but that is just the reality of what this is. Both. Uh, I've had enough in many respects. So here's where it comes down to. I disagree wholeheartedly with Luce. I don't think this is about regime change. I think a lot of people are coming out, even U.S. policymakers, and saying, yes, they do want to contain China's rise. Now, this is really they do want to limit the ability of China to use American technology to further their economic and also their military advancement. I think they're upfront about that. But this goes back to the point that, that i like to ask you and that I raised in my column. We are approaching into a new era where we've never had a third term of a Chinese president who's now going to be president indefinitely. Xi Jinping now is freed up from the politics that he spent much of the past five years trying to negotiate this whole maneuver that he's done. He has spent an incredible amount of time trying to or- orchestrate what happened this week, okay? He's liberated from that now. He's got, there you go, blue skies, off he goes. He can focus on this a lot more. The Americans are very serious. There is nothing that unites American politicians today more than China. I was watching the Val Demings, uh, Marco Rubio senatorial debate in Florida this week. And these two disagreed on everything. But when it came to China, they were right on it with each other. So this is where I come for the global south. And I kind of say, you got to up your game you got to figure out where do you fit in this new world what do you want from the united states what do you want from china do you have the knowledge the capacity the understanding in order to leverage what maybe little power you have in these because these two powers now are not going to be focusing as much on places like africa it, it's you know that's my view and i think and this is what i keep saying you got to up your game cobus you seem uh, distraught by my comments
2: no, no, <laughs> no. You know, kind of. I mean, I was wondering while you were speaking whether them paying less attention to the global south is necessarily a bad thing for the global south, you know. That's um, right.
1: It may not be the worst thing at all. It may not be the worst thing, you know, but it, it, it's bad in terms of being able to access some of the state capital. But it may be good that they're focused elsewhere. That is, you're right, that actually may be an upside for it.
0: But if they focus elsewhere, that's not a problem because for the global south. Because when you talk to many African uh, decision makers and politicians, you have the feeling that they haven't, they are not ready yet for that change. They always, and we've seen that over the years, how they like themselves to play the China vs. the West card. You know, when it pleases them, you know, we want sometimes we want to push that agenda. So since China and you, the U.S. might be focused elsewhere, they might they might find themselves with in no card to play. They might find themselves very at the end of the uh, at the end of the, the wagon and just not knowing how to push further. And this is going to be a problem for me because once the U.S. and China lose interest in Africa, we, we may find we may find ourselves in a huge void where everything can now happen at any time. And no one in Washington or in Beijing, Beijing never done that anyway. But no one will be like paying close attention to see what's happening there, why it's happening, how can we change it, how can we solve it. And China will be like yeah, I've had a priority to move on to. But this is, for me, it can be a good thing and also be a bad thing. It's a bad thing if African politicians and decision makers are not ready for it, are not prepared for it, and I have the feeling that no one is prepared for it. They still have that feeling. And I'm just going to take you an example of a country like DRC. This week, we have the mining ministries of DRC, who's been in Europe and in the US, going and talking about how we need more Western Western mining companies back in the DRC. They went to the US saying the same thing. We need you have that feeling that, you know, they still want to keep that China versus the worst card and everything. But once we move from that place, it's going to be like, yeah, guys, you're on your own. Find a way to move forward with that.
1: Let me get your take on a column that was published this week in Business Day. That's a South African financial newspaper. And it was done by columnist Stephen Guo, who's also an adjunct senior lecturer at the University of Cape Town's Graduate School of Business. He's a regular commentator on South African business issues and speaks quite often on China-related issues. So he wrote, what we in South Africa need to realize is that it is up to us to navigate the relationship with the Chinese. Beijing is generally favorably disposed towards the ANC-led South Africa, and Chinese businesses are keen to find opportunities here our business people also tend to be overtly West-facing and often ignore potential Chinese business opportunities. He goes on to say, the problem in South Africa, though, is the business climate is very, very resistant and very difficult for foreign investors. And then he concludes... China may be a threat to the West as the center of global trade, but this analysis does not necessarily apply to South Africa. Kobus, I felt a little bit vindicated after Stephen published that column because that very much was what I was saying as well, that you got you to gotta figure this thing out. Kobus, do you remember when we interviewed the head of governance at Fitz University? His name is escaping me. And he said something fascinating to us. He said, if there are five people in the South African Ministry of Trade that have China knowledge, he would be surprised. And I think that is just mind-bogglingly stupid at this twenty-five years into the Chinese presence in Africa.
2: Yeah, I don't have anything good to say about it. It's dumb. You know, it's like it's 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 surprising for me
1: how yeah, just how
2: complacent African policymakers are you know and also i think not even not only african policymakers but i think a lot of south african business people um i was you know kind of i was speaking with a with a business journalist a south african business journalist yesterday and she mentioned to me that that she was speaking to a lot of mining executives in south africa and they were all they were all like oh you know kind of is like is changes in, in chinese manufacturing does that mean that the party's over that we just you know, they won't be able to to ex, you know to ex, export as much kind of you know like Stuff to them, and I'm like, yeah. In the first place, you guys have been exporting raw mineral ore for decades and decades, right? Kind of with no seeming move to want to diversify that or move up the value chain or anything. And yet, somehow, it's surprising when when the economy changes in China and they they you know kind of they start making other arrangements. It's just you know kind of like why aren't these people? Preparing, you know, like why aren't they, you know, why aren't they more proactive in terms of like getting different kinds of Chinese deals, but also in preparing for things changing in China? I mean, did they expect things to go on like this forever? I mean, it's crazy.
1: Well, to be fair, and Joe, I'm going to get your take on this. I I received some some email from at least one African government who said, "Eric, you're being a little too tough. There are some of us here who, you know, studied in China. We speak Chinese. We're in the foreign ministries. We're trying to make a difference." I agree that it's not uniform. There is there, there are some amazing people doing some amazing things. But, Jero, you and I have spoken on a number of occasions that said, basically, you as a graduate of Renmin University, People's University in Beijing, you speak Chinese, you've spent 10 years in China, would never get a job in the Congolese foreign ministry. And that is the case for a number of Africans who have returned from China with university degrees, advanced degrees speak the language fluently, have an enormous amount of skill in terms of managing relationships with China, but are not hired into the foreign ministries or even into many African companies because they don't have the right connections, they don't have the right family, they don't come from the right political group, tribe, clan, you name it. And they're marginalized. And and all of that experience in China just goes to waste. Exactly. They're just nowhere. They're just exactly nowhere. Because when you think of it, we are like
0: almost 22, 25 years into where Chinese active engagement in Africa. We are almost, almost a half a million of African students who went to China from 2000 to 2020 to study and they came back, graduate speaking Chinese, work with Chinese and everything. But when you look at the imprint, the impact on China Africa relationship, you, almost, you don't see it anywhere. You're all like, where are they? They're just gone, vanished. From the government perspective, when you talk to officials, you have the feeling that you guys were not just ready to how or go. You are not ready and prepared to take them back and to integrate them in your China-Africa engagement in a way that they're going to be asset for you. They keep on complaining. You have ambassadors in, uh, African ambassador in Beijing who don't speak Chinese, you don't, you have diplomats negotiating with Chinese who don't speak, they have no knowledge at all about Chinese politics, Chinese culture, Chinese negotiation approach. It's just like, it's just mind boggling, you're like, guys, where were you? You have, you have millions of people, you have Thousands of thousands of students who are just willing, ready to come back and study and be with you, and be with you, walk with you. But guys, you're not just using them. And this is for me a place where you kind of wondering if we are really preparing, preparing seriously to understand China, or even if. We, real, we, we, we had that willingness to engage China for what it is instead of using it as a leverage to you know to attract more Western investment. That's why we did not put much energy into knowing China for what it is and where it's going, what is trajectory, what is history, what is strategy. We don't care about it because we see China just as like a pawn to attract the U.S., to make the U.S. jealous, to make the French jealous, to make the Belgium jealous, but not because
2: of, for what China is itself. And with that then, kind of like it that, that I think is so true. And it's also it also raises all of these questions about the project of African development and industrialization itself, right? Because because it's not like these are thriving tech you know, kind of like groups of technocrats, but only where they somehow magically just don't have China capacity. They also they're not growing these kind of technocrat classes in relation to other things either. Um, you know, kind of and, and which then raises a lot of questions about, you know, what African leaders actually want those jobs for you know kind of like whether it's just a uh, like a 21st century version of like old school you know kind of extroversion you know kind of where they're essentially just gatekeepers to to kind of control access to you know kind of to raw materials for a fee you know it's like, like where are those technocrats when we need them you know kind of when africa needs to have a uh, some kind of for example massive kind of green transition for example. You know, so so I, I think I think it, it raises really key questions about about the concept of African development itself, and not just in relation to
1: China. So Jero, you're gonna actually do some research coming up on this about what happened to all of those African students who went to China, got these degrees, learned the culture, language, and, and history and whatnot, and, and when they came back to African countries They just kind of vanish because, as you point out, there's been more than half a million students over the past 20 years who've studied in China, but you don't really feel like there's been a significant impact. That human resource doesn't feel like it's been leveraged. Tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing with this research project.
0: So with that research project what are we what am i going to look at i'm going to look at the trajectory of those uh, alumni african alumni from china what happened to them after china where did they go and uh, did they work with chinese investment back home with did they somehow with the government or private sector work with the chinese I would like to know what happened to them. Where did they go? What were they welcome when they came back? When they were offering the services, were they were they integrated into the foreign uh, foreign ministries or in, in, even into the government? I'm going to also be talking to African decision makers, especially in foreign affairs ministry, to and try to understand. Did they have any strategy when they were sending those scholarships into China? Was there like any thought behind to say we are sending that much and we're gonna get that much? When they came back, did you use them, for example, into your in those big Chinese companies who are investing in Africa? Did you use them? Did you send them in there so they can alleviate any problem that they, we, we we can have with Chinese companies? this is the goal I'm going to try to, to understand and see. And at the end, come up with the solution, not really a solution, but come up with a, a discussion with different decision makers to say, guys, we have to readjust because we cannot keep on doing it for the next 10, 20 years. China took advantage of sending students to the US, to Europe. When they came back, they are now the hawks that we see in foreign affairs. We see in the Ministry of Economics that those, those top diplomats who know exactly they speak the language, they speak different language. They're really on top of the game. And we cannot keep on doing the same thing in Africa. There is a time where we have to say, guys, we have those remanuel sources, they speak Chinese, they know the language, they know the culture, they know the history, even though most of them are into the technical studies, but we still need to understand, that we still need them to integrate them in our discussion with Chinese. Otherwise, we are keep on losing. Because for the Chinese themselves, they say, okay. For them, for those African students, we can we can use them as translator. Because when you see Chinese companies, most of them when they use former African students from China, they use them as translator, you know, between the but even there they keep on changing because now you are seeing more and more Chinese speaking French, speaking Yoruba, speaking English, speaking, and they use them to translate to the local government. They don't need those former African students anymore. So at the end, we have a bulk of students, people from China, they know that, but we're not just using them. And this is where my project is going to be. We're going to be talking with those students across Africa in different countries. We're going to see what happened to them, what did they do, and uh, what's going to be next for them. And to the decision makers,
1: what was the strategy behind, if, they, if there was any strategy anyway. I am so excited about this project because I've never seen anything about this before. Kobus, have you ever seen any research done on this before about... What's happened? No, not, not on this level, no. No, I think this is a wide open space. So fantastic. This is something that we're really going to be interested to follow up and to hear about what you've been doing. So
0: uh, that's why I hope that if we have, uh, if there is some, form, if there is association of former African students would like to, 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 to take part of the project, to reach out, to have the discussion, I'd like really to interview them because we're going to have podcasts, we're going to have chat with them, we're going to have interviews. So it's going to be really interesting if they can reach out so we can talk more about that.
1: Well, I think a lot of students may want to talk because there's a lot of frustration in the student community in Africa because of the COVID zero policies, where they were forced to study remotely for many years. Now they can't get back into the country. And so you might actually find a a, a lot of pent up frustration. And again, this era, and this is again, a new era that we're in, the era of tens of thousands. Before pandemic, it was 62,000 African students every year who went to China. That's over now. The zero COVID has made that all but impossible. Getting into China, some students are going back, but it's a trickle. It's nowhere near what it was. And one has to wonder if that will ever go back to what it was. So again, we're possibly in, we're in uncharted territory here in many different ways. Guys, before we move on to a couple other quick topics, just before we end end the show, I want to get your take on... One of the propaganda videos, and one of the noticeable things about this twentieth twentieth Party Congress that I saw was the the media that was produced was much slicker. I mean, just orders of magnitude slicker than what we've seen in the past. Normally, in the past, it was this kind of crappy CCTV style, you know, videos that just really. Ugh. Awkward. This time, though, it was again, it reminded me of what a US political convention does when the Democrats and the Republicans they put, you know, you remember back in the Clinton days, it was a man from hope. And it was this real kind of like, and then the Trump videos, which were like, bam. Well, the Chinese did a whole bunch of videos around Xi and then around the Communist Party. And I want to play one for you about the Communist Party because I think this is the kind of message that would resonate in parts of Africa. Let's take a listen to, again, and, and I edited this a little bit for, to shrink it down, so anybody from the Chinese Communist Party who's gonna get angry at me for editing this, I had to for the sake of time. So it's, <laughs> who knows what I've <laughs> unfurled here, but okay, let's take a listen now. Who
2: am I? I'm not a born leader. I was once so weak that only a few comrades were there for me. For me, everything did not always go smoothly. I have passed through adversity and made great sacrifices while marching ahead. I was not born to be invincible. All that I do is to keep
0: dreaming and fighting.
2: My name is
1: the Communist Party of China. So Again, there's the, that was, if you didn't recognize the voice, that was Xi Jinping speaking there and basically saying, you know, the Communist Party is the center of everything in China. But, Cobus, there's one message in there that I thought w- w- would be interesting to get your take on this idea that I was once weak and now I'm not anymore. And I think that is a message for a lot of people in places like Africa who feel forgotten who feel trampled on, who feel that they don't get the attention and the respect that they deserve to see a country that in our lifetime, barely in Gerald's lifetime, but Kobus and you're in my lifetime, was at the poverty level that some of Africa's poorest countries are at today. And today it is the power that it is. And I thought that's, a, that's part of the propaganda narrative that China's used very successfully over the past 10 years, 15 years in places like Africa to say, we were poor, but we're not anymore.
2: Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, kind of it's one of China's most most effective tools, I think, in, in, in the global South in Africa, particularly. It'll be interesting to hear African reactions to this media, you know, kind of it, that would be such a fun thing to like play to like a, a class of grad students, for example, you know, it would be
1: and to just kind of get their reaction. Um, but what do you think they would say, though? Try channel, you taught grad students this media what do you think they would
2: say it's you know that's the thing with teaching them it's like you know they always surprise you so so you're not i'm not 100 sure i think some of them would definitely get a lot of resonance from not only from the development itself but also increasingly from the stability i think that 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 we see in China you know um and I think in 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 you know in South Africa for example though so you know recently we, we spoke to Joseph Asunka, right kind of the the head of afrobarometer who does all of these polling all of this polling around African countries and one of the things they poll for is is ex- how excited people are about democracy and in generally in general like a lot of a lot of young African people tend to be very pro-democracy the one country where they have lost a lot of their enthusiasm for democracy is South Africa interestingly um South Africa's the one African country where where you know the where support for democracy has actually fallen, and I, a lot of it I think has to do with with perceptions in South Africa that that democracy is essentially just opened the door to, to just corruption, um, and there's been a lot of a lot of kind of like informal you know not calls but like i've heard people say that oh you know kind of if someone could someone with backbone or someone with a strong approach could just sort all this chaos out you know like that kind of so so you know like the, you get the feeling in south africa that if someone could could or could offer you know order um, and particularly pu- public safety, and and more predictable or regular kind of water and electricity supplies, they would be able to get away with a lot, uh, with with being quite a hard,
1: like authoritarian turn, um, and that but, is something but, that I kind of. This is big man politics. This was one of the interesting things that during the Trump years, despite the fact that Trump denigrated places like Nigeria. He actually polled quite well in Nigeria because they definitely liked the big man politics. Giro, you come from a country where there is literally a big man. Who runs sorry the country. sorry
2: to interrupt you Eric I think, I think I, I tend to see that as a misreading because the thing is like the, the like you know okay so, so Trump is a wild gardener you know I don't think he necessarily you know he, he needs more unpacking and kind of in the African context but but I think like Africa is used to big man politics right I mean the Africa originated big man politics to a, to a certain extent but 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 this is is a system that that actually delivers social goods. And there's the difference, because a lot of, a lot of Africa has seen many, many kind of like big man led governments who don't deliver anything. And, and you know, kind of, and I think, and, and uh, to a certain extent, democracy itself has been tainted through through that process, because a lot of these big men are voted for. But, you know, in the end, like it, it so comes, it comes Singapore yes, model because it's, it's that Singapore model it's like we're willing to give up civil liberties in order to get stability and to get social goods and services.
0: Exactly, and talking about Singapore, you have that kind of model in Rwanda, where people say, you know, Kagame took Rwanda from downgrade and take it up, and because he was a strong man, he built a very strong apparatus to control the country, to provide provide to to provide public goods, safety, development, and all that. And this is where, for me, I think that Chinese Congress and Xi Jinping third third uh, mandate can really resonate in many on the continent because now that you have many political parties on the continent where they can they kind of they try to remove the term limit. It's been a trend, a trend that we've been seeing for, for many years. Now, when they were doing that, even developed countries, US ambassador, different ambassadors would tell them that, you know, China, the country that you like, even China has a term limit of two two mandates. Of, 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 of mandate. But now China has removed it. Many in Africa would be like, yes, we need those strong stability. We need that strong system. And is when I kind of a bit disagree with you, it's like, they used to big men, but the big men with democratic system does not work. So when you take the big men system combining with the Chinese system, they can say, yeah, that can provide public good. And I'm telling you, people are going to take Rwanda as an example. Say, you look at Kagame. He, quite, he does whatever he does, the way he does it, but you say he's delivering. it's delivering stability, safety, and whatever you say, you want to say. So this is why I think that Chinese Congress, what Xi Jinping is doing right now, will slowly resonate in many African countries. And and let's not forget that last year they integrated a leadership school in Eastern Africa, where they're going to be training six country policy, uh, six country and uh, six uh, political parties in Africa. Those like Zimbabwe, Angola. A place where we find a lot of strong China ties, where they're coming from, you know, liberation army fighters and everything. So, in those parties, there, I won't be surprised that in the years, in the coming years, that we get, we're going to see a shift of politics, a shift based on how China is going to influence them and to try to say we are going to deliver stability, we are going to deliver development economy, we are going to deliver public goods. And with that context I'm thinking that parties like ENC they can
1: take an opportunity to say okay I think we also need something like that in here. Of course there's a party training school also in South Africa. That party training school you're talking about is in Tanzania. And this, again, is not the Chinese state. Very important distinction here. This is the Communist Party of China that is running those training academies that's there. Uh, Let's get on to two final topics. Big news that happened this week. Number one, Kobus, the Transnet strikes are now over. So this was a drama that played out since I think it was October 6th that basically brought all rail and shipping out of South Africa to a grinding halt. This speaks a little bit to what Stephen Kuo was talking about in terms of the obstacles to doing business in uh, in South Africa. This has a very direct tie to China because the port of Durban in particular and the port of Cape Town are major gateways for all of the stuff that comes from Giraud's home country in the DRC. It travels down the N1 highway into the port of Durban. It's back again. What was the discussion in South Africa about the impact that this has on China, on South Africa's role as a gateway for goods going to places like China, and in and, and the impact that this strike had? I think South Africans are so used to these kind
2: of cycles. I don't, you know, there was there was certainly you know worry raised about it in terms of in terms of kind of lost revenue and so on, but. You know, like South Africa has seen these kind of strikes before. It's a it's a kind of a it's a it's a ritual in South African politics where the unions need to to demonstrate their power. You know, I think that they were pushed further than they usually were. I think because of because because usually they would threaten a strike, but they wouldn't necessarily like pull the trigger. In this case I think they, you know, kind of like the bottom line on the Transnet side and the the, the kind of value of of keeping those lines running probably made the Transnet made the employer side uh, you know kind of more resistant which then f- that pushed the unions into actually striking. But, you know, South Africa South Africa isn't surprised by strikes.
1: <laughs> well, I think South Africa sometimes takes its role in the global economy for granted here because uh, Transnet had to declare force majeure on its uh, shipping contracts for the third time in 18 months. That's a lot of, of of blockages and stoppages that are going on. Here's the issue though, coming out of the DRC now, it's not only going to be South Africa that will be the gateway for it. So there are new railways and port systems being built in the Port of Lobito in Angola, the Walvis Bay in Namibia. Tanzania now has its sights set on bringing all of that cobalt and copper and ore out of the DRC to the port of Dar es Salaam. When you look at this, Giro, and you see everything, again, being blocked up, I think about the auto industry that is in desperate need for cobalt and for lithium. And when they see these, sh- these shutdowns in places like South Africa, all they're going to do is send all of their MBAs to go and figure out new logistics routes to get that stuff out of the Congo so they can feed those, those, those battery factories and then make you know, all the Teslas that, that need those, those resources.
0: Yes, they're gonna try, and I think that uh, they keep they're actually trying to do that now to find an alternative because in eighteen months when you have three force smudgers and this is even this is not this one is not even the longest one. The longest one was like the one we we had a few months ago. It was like guys, there's just like too much, and without even not without even mentioning the and uh, different uh, flow that happened in South Africa. But they, yes, they're gonna be looking for opportunities. But I think this is this might be an opportunity for African countries, those producing countries to say. Hey, guys, Instead of looking for opportunities other way out from Africa, why don't you just build it in land here? And we see that trend now happening in Zimbabwe. People like trying to, we want those trends here. So I think what's happening in South Africa going to upset many in China. But if African countries replace the court well, they can also seize the opportunity to say, instead of looking another way out,
1: let's just put it here in home. So the Zimbabwe reference that Joe made is very interesting. Uh, A consortium of Chinese companies signed a $2.8 billion deal to not only mine but also process lithium. Here we are with the dream of moving up the value chain, and in all places, it's happening in Zimbabwe. So that is something very interesting. Uh, By the way, we have reached out to an Indonesian mining expert to come on the show Indonesia has done an excellent job in terms of forcing companies, especially Chinese companies, to process nickel domestically. And we think there might be some good examples there in terms of what African countries are trying to do. Kobus, last topic on the agenda today before we take off, and that was uh, Chinese Ambassador Zhou Pingjian in Nairobi met for the second time with newly elected President William Ruto. And this was a very big week for China-Kenya relations. There's a lot at stake on this. Earlier in the week, we saw that, again, the Kenyan government denied this, but they never offered up any proof to the contrary. To prove otherwise, Business Daily newspaper published a photo of a $10.8 million fine Implemented by the China Exim Bank for effectively a default on the standard gauge railway loan. At the same time, then in in the parliamentary, uh, let's see, it's the confirmation hearings for the new cabinet. The new road and transport minister said that they are going to ask for a five-year repayment holiday from the Chinese on those loans. Again, no indication that the Chinese will do it. A lot of activity in the China Kenya space. What was your take, Copus, this week?
2: Yeah, I just, I just, they're all very interesting kind of data points. The, um, you know, it is very interesting to see how the new government is is engaging with all of these these commitments set up by the, by their predecessors like there was a lot of criticism in these confirmation hearings about it, the specific deals made by the Kenyatta government and also a commitment to publish the the contract of the Sandgauge railway which would be a, a major event if it actually is published and uh, you know so 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 i think all all of this is just is is kind of interesting kind of indicators of of you know of of tactics that kenya is trying to kind of to remain liquid while dealing with a a growing debt crisis and i think it's still also going to be very interesting to see because kenya entered this 38 month long uh, imf process, kind of a stabilization process um, this year, earlier this year. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see how that then plays into all of these commitments to to repaying the Chinese and, and all of the other creditors um, in, involved in, in Kenya.
1: I thought it was interesting in the transport minister's parliamentary confirmation hearings that he threw some shade on the Nairobi Expressway because this is not what we've heard from the Kenyan government up until now. And he basically said, this thing isn't viable. We didn't like the, the procurement process. I mean, he basically said it was a lot like some of the other deals. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention, the Kenyan Auditor General also this week, also published in Business Daily, revealed that a $175 million fiber optic loan, that is a loan to build a fiber optic network in Kenya, she wasn't able to audit it and she said there there were a lot of irregularities with the China Exim Bank there was not a, an open bidding process and it just feels like oh my god here we go again that 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 things just don't seem to be improving in Kenya when it comes to these procurement issues and even though all of these procurement issues are on the law on the books it's a, it's against the law to do so much of what they're doing and yet it keeps happening again Giro, we're out of time. I'm going to give you the last word on Kenya and the week that we've had. So on Kenya, there's nothing much to say from my
0: side. So simply that, yeah. We're gonna have an interesting story to see to see what's gonna happen. For me, it's more into see how Ruto is going to move toward China because he was a bit hard on he had hard stance. The Ruto candidate seems to be a different Ruto as president when he's now engaging with China. Let's see how. Maybe he had his Michael Sutter, you know, Michael Sutter experience. Now he's gonna he's gonna catch up with real politics and let's see how he's gonna hand, how he's going to deal with that. So yeah, for the rest of the week, uh, we keep on. Um, working and providing news about what China is doing in Africa. And we have some interesting stories and that you're going to, we are covering on our French website and English website. So not really big stories this week, but you're going to find some quite interesting stories to read on our website. And we have also our bi-weekly newsletter. So coming out every Tuesday and Friday when you have the time, go check it out and subscribe. You're going to be really happy about the content that we're providing.
1: So you can subscribe right at the top of the Projet Afrique Chine. If you didn't get that website, it's in the show notes and you will be able to sign up for Giro's excellent newsletter. Again, if you speak French, we also offer it in Arabic. Our Arabic editor, Nesrin Kamal, is doing a fantastic job on that one. She's doing a weekly Arabic language newsletter and also a podcast as well. So very exciting there. And finally, I want to give a very big welcome to the community at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, who are our newest uh, subscribers to the China Global South Project. So anybody who is a faculty or a community member at SOAS, you can now access us. If you would like to see what the folks at SOAS are reading and at about 25 different governments around the world and thousands of subscribers, go to China globalsouth.com, slash subscribe and you'll see that uh, all the options are there. It's super cheap, but again, we speak to this issue. Gentlemen, this is what we do. We've been speaking to this issue of China knowledge, China literacy, and China capacity. There's no shortcut to figuring out how to get ahead on this. The only way you do it is by reading, reading, and more reading. And we are just one great place to make that easier for you. Kobus writes two days a week. I write two days a week. And then Giro, Nesrin, and our entire team kind of feed in and contribute into that. So it's a great, great effort from folks in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Once again, ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. Last piece of log rolling. Giro, you are the community manager for our Patreon community at Patreon.com slash Project. Tell everybody what we're doing over there.
0: So in, uh, in our Patreon community, we provide weekly videos and digests about what we do in China Africa. We also provide a one-to-one conversation for our top team members. If you really want to have this monthly one-to-one conversation with us, having insights, having a moment to talk with us, just come and join us. It's, we're going to be really happy to have you in our Patreon community. And I really want to thank our Patreon community. It's a community that keeps on growing. People keep on trusting us. And I really, I'm really really grateful about what what they do, what we provide, and I would like to engage with them much more and more in, in, in the future. So, if you really like what we do, in terms of our content, in terms of what we cover in China, Africa, and China and Global South, come and join our Patreon. You can help us keep on that on keep on being that independent news that's covering China and Africa, China and the Global
1: South. It's so important. Once again, patreon.com dot slash China Africa Project, and you will also get for our top tier members. Don't forget, you get some swag. You get a mug. That is very cool. You know, people have sent us pictures of their mugs, or, you know, on their desks around the world. Yes, I think that is yeah, so cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, we're getting some really great feedback on these week in review shows. In fact, we're also going to start something new, maybe in November, where we're going to, Cobus. This is very scary. This is very, very scary. You and I have faces <laughs> for radio, and we're going to start doing. Uh, we're going to start putting these shows up on YouTube and trying to, to reach a larger audience.
2: Yeah, I'm finally getting that Botox I was planning. <laughs>
1: That's right. I am terrified. I mean, I am really, really terrified. But I, there's so many great podcasts now up on YouTube. And there's such a great energy with this group. And we're going to get Nasreen to join us as well. And so, and we've got our editor, Kevin in Nairobi, who's going to Put all this magic together. So uh, watch out for that on our YouTube channel. We're really going to start doing some new things on our on our YouTube channel, and we'll put the links for that also in the show notes. Okay, let's leave it there. Kobus, Géraud, and I will be back again maybe next week, definitely the week after. Gero, we'll see you, obviously, on the French site. And until then, thank you so much for listening.
0: The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGSProject and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic.